I think one thing that is important to remember is the price of freedom is uncertainty. And so you gotta venture into that unknown and you're definitely taking more risks, but you also have more opportunities. Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premier show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Welcome to today's episode of Tough Tech Today. Today we are very lucky to have Kate Kruger. Kate Kruger is the founder of Helicon Consulting, a boutique firm that specializes in synthetic biology, alternative proteins, and high-tech food. She works with foundations and corporations and investors to bring 21st century biotechnology to food innovation. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. So let's start off and just give us a taste of what is high-tech food. Our viewers have probably heard about some of these alternative sorts of, you know, Beyond Meat, I'm sure people have heard about, but I'm sure the field is a lot more broader than, um, you know, plant-based meat patties. Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of people have maybe heard about some of the most popular foods in the space, so the Beyond Burger, the Impossible Burger, Uh, Those two are super exciting. They're part of what I like to call this kind of spectrum of new foods. So if you start on one end, you get foods that were invented in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, things like updated TV dinners uh, with lots of extrusion tech protein, similar to cheese doodle tech. Uh, And essentially a really souped up version of cheese doodle tech is what's used in the uh, Beyond Burger. That's extremely reductive, but it's a Modern update on extrusion technology with some really Wait, fun additives. There. What is cheese doodle tech? Yeah, yeah, cheese that. doodle tech. Yeah, <laughs> so I want to know. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, so the cheese doodle was a really pioneering food in its day um, because it was one of the early products to uh, that really involved mushing up ingredients and spitting them out. Um, at really high temperatures in such a way that you get these uh, really nice pieces of protein that have different properties than uh, what they did before, or in the case of cheese, doodle carbs. Um, was this and, something that people bought at the store, like a cheese doodle? Oh, yeah. These are was, like cheese doodles. Like is that That's a brand, cheese doodle? I think it's the generic, right? I mean, that's my... I don't know. I read this like um, obit of the guy who invented the cheese doodle. And I think they called it a cheese doodle in the obit. So oh my. this okay. is my great well, <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll show a picture of it list. in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you're right, though. I don't actually, now that you're saying it, I'm questioning myself on the cheese doodle. But <laughs> so, yeah. so tell us more about this cheese doodle. Doodle tech has, has now, you know, been, been repurposed to make meat burgers and billion-dollar companies. Yeah, essentially. So that that essentially tech of um, new types of protein formulations uh, that are still rather macro scale are, are definitely um, where this kind of new food space started. Um, and while that's really exciting, some of the newer technologies kind of take things to the next level. So the Impossible Burger is really exciting because it's got this like hemoglobin protein in it, which actually uh, has a red color and... Um, it has iron attached to it. And part of the great thing about that is that's used primarily in these new formulations to give you that high value ingredient that you can't get elsewhere. And that uses recombinant protein technologies that um, have been used in the industrial context since the 1990s, but very rarely. So it's the first time they've been used as a bulk ingredient in food production. So What's a what's a yeah. rec- recombinant protein technology? Yeah, so that's what's so exciting about this stuff is um, you you're essentially sticking a gene from one organism into another organism that's better at making uh, a particular type of protein that, that the gene encodes. Mm. So, for instance, if you want to make um, a lot of like hemoglobin, you could um, take that gene from a species that has all the characteristics you want, put it into another species that can create a lot of that uh, protein, and then you get better what we call expression or um, amount of that protein. So um, a nice clean example is in the case of, for instance, Perfect Day, uh, which is a company that makes recombinant milk proteins. 
you can take the gene that encodes for a milk protein, stick it into another organism, like say yeast, for instance, or microflora, and that, then that organism will create a whole lot of that protein much more cheaply um, and through a much different production means than you could otherwise. Is this the similar idea, though, I guess sort of um, sort of complement to like a Roundup Ready crop that has been like a, a, a soy that's been gene genetically modified to be resistant to a particular type of herbicide? And that's is that through the recombinant gene work? Um, and so that's going to upstream from sort of the, the a plant based meat or otherwise. Right. But similar sort of under, underlying technology. It's really cool that we, we can do all sorts of different genetic manipulations. So um, one distinction here is we're, we're just making lots of protein to harvest. So it's more mm -hmm. like, a, a, it's a, in a sense, a micro-scale version of kind of a genetic modification. So rather than altering an entire plant that you're going to go put out in the field, you're altering a smaller microorganism like a yeast or a microflora, for instance, to um, just make, make a lot of protein. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are the wonders of kind of genetic engineering these days, or the, the number of things we can do is, is really impressive. With the, the growth rates, uh, population of, of Earth growing significantly, where, I mean, there's, there's, there are initiatives and a lot of work in terms of figuring out how are we going to keep feeding the, the current population we have, given issues around climate change, et cetera, and sea level rise, for example, but also then um, the anticipated addition of a billion more people onto our planet. So how does that big, big challenge that we're facing globally, how does that motivate you to, like, how, how do you see this role really helping to meet that kind of challenge? And, and is, I mean, we, we can't farm enough meat in the traditional sense now? Is that the, the primary sort of issue of concern? Yeah, I think that's definitely one thing that's really top of mind for a lot of people. Also, there are so many things that make things like food security less certain than we kind of initially think it is. Um, coronavirus is a great example. No one expected changes in supply chain and distribution. Um, there are other kind of, I think, niche cases where we're seeing some of these concerns crop up even before they will necessarily on a global scale. So Places like Singapore, for instance, that are extremely high density, where um, people would like to be able to make their own food locally. Um, places that, uh, for instance, have a lot more energy or geothermal than other places like Iceland. Um, so some of these places have these kind of edge either capabilities or wants and needs uh, that kind of make them, in essence, kind of early adopters of some of these tech types because they are subject to different pressures than the rest of the world. What's the connection to geothermal, for example? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there's some really cool companies in Iceland that are uh, making high-value proteins in wheat um, using recombinant protein technology to just create tons of this, um, hmm. what are called growth factors. Um, yeah. Okay. And it's, so they're it's, using yeah, the wheat itself to grow the growth factor? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're actually a growth factor, this, what, is this like a, a hormone type protein? Yeah, essentially. So it's, it's a protein that helps cells grow and divide. Um, and it's one of the types of proteins that keeps cells a little more stem. Um, so they don't uh, grow up as fast in some cases or they stay alive longer. Um, so and it's that's used in research, or are they feeding this stuff to people? They feed this stuff to cells uh, in cellular agriculture sometimes, to muscle cells. Um, or right now it's kind of application on the market as an extremely, extremely expensive cosmetics. Mm. So, so? Um, so hmm? I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't have associated protein... For example, if we're thinking about food, <laughs> to me, it's protein's protein. Like, I either get it from eating an egg, a steak, or, like, lentils, for example. Um, but yeah. But it sounds like there's there's a lot of differences in terms of, it's not, you know, the food group of protein is not just, you know, a blanket uniform kind of material. And so, help us decompose that a bit in terms of why, why this is such a, a key issue, because... It's, totally. I mean, protein is what we need, I mean, my understanding. 
as a slight aside, I understand that there's like the um, hunter gatherer folks would be out like hunting rabbits and hares. Um, but you can actually starve to death. A human can starve to death trying to eat a bunch a strictly like rabbit diet because it's it's low protein. Right. But that's a specific type of protein. That's a great question. I actually don't know about an all rabbit diet. I'm super curious now. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. E- e- eating only rabbits or eating only what rabbits eat? Eating yeah, that's the rabbits. other question. Maybe I misunderstood. <laughs> eating only... Yeah, uh, man, I have so many questions now. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, but to your point, protein's great. Uh, and protein's really interesting because, yeah, like you said, it's you can think about it on a lot of either size scales, nutritive scales, functional scales. Um, and that's because, you know, um, when you think about protein we eat, just for kind of nutrition, you could think about amino acids essentially, which are the smaller building block of proteins. Every protein is made out of amino acids. Um, and we need certain numbers of amino acids to live and grow and survive. Some our bodies can make, some our bodies can't make. So uh, for the ones we can't make, it's really important that we get it in our diet. Um, and that's one thing we think about when we think about um, making sure that people who are vegan, for instance, have complete protein in their diet that they get through different foods. Um, the interesting thing, though, is if you zoom in on particular proteins, proteins are, um, they do all sorts of pro- um, different processes in the body. Um, some of them are structural. Some of them keep our skin healthy. Um, some of them have different functions that cause cells to enter different growth stages or spread messages um, or just do all sorts of stuff. So, so like for the different growth phases and stuff, are are you alluding back to the, the, the protein that was used in the cosmetic? Like does this wheat grown cosmetic protein make your skin younger actually some people claim that i don't i personally have not looked into this data but um it might i'm not ruling that out (laughs) because growth factors are really they're really interesting powerful proteins that in cell culture do keep cells um alive and thriving in a way that's been shown um through many many decades of experiments um it reminds me almost of like a tissue culture. It reminds me like a like a uh, a light lightweight version of of like a stem cell. You know, like stem cells are are great. It's a little bit tricky to get them um, and and stuff. But so if we can maybe use growth factor as a way to to help get some of those benefits of having a sort of a, a pliable sort of cell, I guess in my sense, a, a mechanism to help promote what we like. Um, exactly, it, it's a benefit. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, too, that's so hard about, like, cell ag, is you do need to make these things like growth factors to, exactly to your point, keep different types of cells um, growing and productive to the extent that you can grow um, various tissues out of them. So that's a big um, challenge right now, is figuring out how to grow these growth factors in an economical way. Things usually hit cosmetic-grade pricing before they hit food-grade pricing, because you can charge so much more for a cosmetic than you can for a food. Um, So we've hit the point where people can productively sell growth factors in a cosmetic context uh, and make money, but we haven't yet hit the point where they can sell them uh, in a price context where you can use them in food production uh, cost-effectively. So that's essentially In a nutshell, the biggest problem that faces cellular agriculture right now is figuring out how to make cell growth media, particularly the growth factors inside cell growth media, cost-effective enough that you can produce large amounts of meat. Um, Usually I start this explanation the other direction, but you guys are really cool and we dive kind of dove uh, headfirst (laughs) into the hardest part of the science before we even got the surface level. So my apologies. I feel like I went backwards on you guys. So we can start all over. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm so sorry. It's so interesting. This is so fascinating. (laughs) I've just started monologuing on you guys. So (laughs) no, no. Okay. Take us back to the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, sure. So, um, Yeah. Let's see, where should we start? So yeah, I mean, you guys asked some great questions about different types of protein text. So we have the more straightforward, 
remushed version of plant protein, essentially, to protein that's made through some interesting genetic tricks uh, to give us higher levels of protein um, expression that we can use uh, in a final product. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be things like putting a gene from a cow that makes milk into microflora or yeast, creating a ton of that milk protein, and then using that protein to make a food product. Uh, that would be one kind of straightforward example. And then like the whole next frontier that we haven't even hit yet is um, how you grow a steak in a lab, essentially. Uh, so, you know. Yeah, it, that's cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot I, to talk about. That's what I'm waiting for. Once we're growing steaks in labs, you know, as long as there's good flavor. Yeah, I'll, right? I'll be, I'll be eating that every day. Yeah, so, I, so that's, that's I think the something, hard stuff. Something to establish here is that that there's, um, and I don't know this part, I like your, your clarification on that, that is it generally accepted now that that a meat-based diet and, and the broad sort of vegetarian vegetarianism, at least in the U.S., is probably on the order of maybe 5% of the population, um, that a majority of folks are in the U.S. are omnivores, I'd say. And so um, is, it, it, I think, meat consumption is tied to negative effects on climate change, right? Or as like a driver of climate change. That, that would probably be one part I'd like to, to have your, your assessment on. And then beyond that is the politicization of food. And I think that's a, that's a bigger thing I think that we could explore. Um, but first, is eating meat bad for the environment? And why or why not? And how can we change that? Yeah, so is eating meat bad for the environment? It definitely has a bigger water footprint than a lot of other types of food um, that people can consume for the same portion size. Um, and it definitely has a larger land footprint. So when it comes to land footprint and water footprint, it's almost certain that um, some other type of land-based facility production would um, very most likely be better. When it comes to things like um, energy consumption, it's a little harder to say until we actually scale any kind of production. Um, and that's kind of a big open question. I think a lot of um, people who look into this question use life cycle assessments to kind of validate um, whether or not these things work. So a life cycle assessment is essentially you put in a ton of data about a facility um, and then kind of spit out some numbers essentially at the end as to how much energy is spent, whether or not um, this is better than uh, standard manufacturer, et cetera. But the problem is those models, of course, are only as good as the data you put in. Mm -hmm. uh, and since we don't have really any real data to put in yet, the results are very hard to interpret um, in sure. terms of any real meaning. <laughs> so yeah, it's, imagine, it's like, hard. I mean, like lab-grown meat, right? It's in this big lab, all these lights and scientists, and they're feeding it. Like the carbon impact of, of that lab-grown meat has to be pretty big, at least at this point, right? Totally, yeah. I mean, it's like knitting something at home, right? I mean, that yeah. obviously takes way more time and resources than, you know, some industrial factory where we're churning out sweaters or something. Um, we're still a little bit closer to kind of at-home um, low-quantity manufacture than we are um, to have any kind of industrial-grade situation. What's, what's the biggest synthetic steak that's been made so far? Like <laughs> That's actually a good question. So to my knowledge, there's a company called Wildtype that's done very small structured bits of salmon. Um, I think on the size kind of scale of sashimi, they may have done bigger, but to my knowledge, sashimi is about the biggest they've done. Um, and that's that's a pretty big deal. So, mm. yeah. And those are actual salmon cells. I, To my knowledge, I have not eaten this, but... Okay. Yeah. But, yeah, salmon cells. So, that's in cool. general, I, the, yeah, go I, ahead. It is so... I'm just curious how it tastes, but I mean, you probably wouldn't know that. I wouldn't. <laughs> Maybe know. you've talked to someone that's eaten it. So, generation one, like the very first products, people tended to say they tasted like dog treats because they were all muscle cells and cell growth media. Mm. Um, 
before the space got really interested in fats and doing fat cells or getting good fat tech. So um, this current generation, I think, has got a better handle on that, but okay. that's been a problem. So fat tech is the up-and-coming area. And- fat, fat's really hot right now in the alt-food space. So that let's look at then on the on the politicization component that I had uh, mentioned earlier, where there's uh, for accuracy or inaccurate and not um, that vegetarianism and the advocacy for weaning folks off of a predominantly meat based diet, I'd venture to say is tends to be perceived more as a like a maybe a elitist or left a leftist kind of approach or liberal maybe let's say um and so how is that um a sort of a disservice or inaccurate kind of proposition well yeah, it is accurate and then <laughs> and then why is it why is it tied just to the, to the liberal whatever's um and, and not part of the general so why is me even eating tied with um environmental sustainability mm-hmm. concerns Yes, and and particularly the politics around that, because when we politicize anything, uh, it seems like it causes you start to instantly see polarization, and and it makes it really hard to find that center center line of of like rationality and and moving forward progress, um, and and it's it's not every place you can find a you know even an Impossible Burger is not everywhere, and they're working as a company to you know change that, but then even consumers like literally f- folks eating it are not necessarily being swayed from eating their steaks etc um, and so we don't I, I say as a food industry food especially sort of high-tech food it's not quite yet at the level of being uh, better than the current sort of baseline which is an old-fashioned cow grow it slaughter it prepare it it's it's hard to beat that or at least the perceived quality of of a good angus so what yeah yeah to break that down a couple ways definitely the environmental impact of plant-based burgers including the beyond and the impossible burger is certainly uh, better than your average um, whole animal cow burger production Uh, from a sustainability standpoint um, from a taste standpoint yeah there's there's still some more work to be done i think we're not quite there yet Um, i think the hope is that some of these um more animal cell-based products will hopefully be more delicious. I think there's quite a bit of promise there, just in terms of the, the ingredients that you can feed these cells. So you can, mm-hmm. um, the cell growth media is extremely tunable. You can put more fat in there, less fat in there. Um, interesting ingredients, you can... So you could grow pre-seasoned meat. Yeah, totally. I think there's so much. And like the other thing too is if you've already gone to the trouble of growing these cells in culture and genetically manipulating them, there's no reason why you can't um, genetically ma- manipulate them in all sorts of extra fun ways, right? Like add some capsaicin production, or you know, like um, you know, make it a little bit hot and spicy, or you know, um, add some fun colors. Or I know someone who's worked on some health pathways. So you can think about making essentially golden meat where you get more antioxidants in your meat product. So yeah, I mean, I think the sky's the limit. Um, So the trick is going to be hopefully that these new products will transcend traditional meat production um, because you kind of top out at like Wagyu, right? Um, In theory, if you get, you know, like a hand massaged cow from a special genetic lineage, you know, um, it's very delicious, but very expensive. So I mean, ideally, if you could do something even better than that, um, that'd be pretty cool. So that's the dream. Grow, grow something tastier than Wagyu. Yes, <laughs> that's the dream. I mean, I think that would convince a lot of people to start buying it, right? <laughs> I mean, food scientists are super gifted. I mean, back to cheese doodles, it's hard to do much better than a cheese doodle. So, you know, you could get... So, so I did look up a cheese doodle. <laughs> yeah. talking, and that's... It's basically a Cheeto, right? Yes. Like it's the same process? Okay. Yes. Okay. I should have right. said that initially. My for, for all our yeah. listeners, basically a Cheeto. <laughs> but a cheese puff or something. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, Kate, you've, you, you've worked with um, 
sort of quite the, the who's who of, of organizations in terms of on, on your consulting side of things as, as sort of the frontier tech consulting. Um, some of those organizations and consultancies being like Millipore Sigma, IndieBio, XPRIZE, SynBio Beta, the list goes on. Um, so how walk us through, how do you go down that path of vetting the science looking for where, like, who's going to pay for this kind of new venture concept, um, the technologies behind it. How do you think about sort of end-to-end the value creation and value capture of high-tech food? Because that's that sounds to me, I don't understand how, how do we decompose that kind of problem set? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not sure I'm going to answer it quite the way you're looking for. So let me know if we need to back up and add some more. Kind of thoughts or different angles. Um, so first of all, I think one thing that's really exciting about this space is so many people are really interested. So at this time, for early stage ventures, um, a fair amount of startup-based R&D and other kind of early pursuits, there's so much interest and so much enthusiasm and so much hope. Um, it's quite grounded in many cases um, that there are many investment dollars. So money isn't really a pain point in the startup context. When it comes to pre-competitive university side research, it definitely is a pain point. We don't currently have established mechanisms to get that university level funding. So that is one of the challenges is innovation in this space exists almost solely in startup contexts. Um, that said, one of the things about the startup context is you can only hire so many people at a certain time. And an early team is going to have somewhere between two, five, maybe eight people. And so you can only get so many really skill sets represented. And also, the space is very siloed. So in general, because intellectual property protection is so important, people can't really talk about what they're doing very much. And everyone's just working really hard on getting these patents filed. So there's not a whole lot of centralized knowledge in the space outside of the two nonprofits in the field, which are the Good Food Institute and New Harvest. And that's part of the reason that I'm able to have a little bit more of a global view in this field is because I come from a traditional science background, um, PhD in cell biology, heavy background in biochemistry, biophysics, uh, followed by some time at Perfect Day and then at New Harvest. So New Harvest is the oldest nonprofit in the space. Um, I was research director there for three years and only PhD on staff. So because of that, most of the people who were interested in this space and had technical questions would come to me. So I got this really global understanding of what was going on in the space. Um, also, the New Harvest Research Fellows are amazing folks at universities around the world doing a lot of that cutting-edge lab-based research. So um, in growing that program and developing that program, I got a really good uh, finger on the pulse of the academic side of the cell-based meat space. So I'm really fortunate in that I kind of have this, I'd say, slightly more global view of the cellular agriculture space than a lot of people can get. Um, and there's a whole lot going on. I mean, I think that's the exciting thing about this space is just the wide variety of tech that's involved. It's everything from really... Um, academic side, biology, stem cell biology, biochemistry, um, really, really fundamental work, all the way to really applied work, chemical engineering, um, more engineering when it comes to kind of scale up and such, um, that it's just very um, easy to be able to plug in some of the spots that might not be so intuitive if you're only looking at one part of the picture. Mm. So that's a that broad perspective is uh, a, a big thing that that you bring to customers as part of uh, Helicon is that you've are one of the few people that have actually been across all these different silos. Yeah, exactly, and it's the zoom in, zoom out too, because I think people with science or technical training learn how to ask questions a certain way and learn how to kind of dig into things a certain way. So. That kind of depth and breadth is, I think, really helpful. So <laughs> it's kind of a non-answer because it's a little bit high level, but um, yeah, yeah. Well, to be more specific, let's say like like I'm a customer of yours. Like, what are <laughs> the types of things that that I'm going to be asking you? Yeah, it depends what you want to do. So oftentimes, people will come 
to me from, I'd say, one of three places. Um, one is maybe you're an investor or a company who wants to get into this space uh, and you have a company you're looking into. And um, maybe you have an expertise in one part of science, say, for instance, you're a deep tech firm, but you tend to focus on more physics or um, different parts of deep space or deep tech innovation. Um, or you might have finance backgrounds, or you might have a food background, and you want to know more how the science works in this space, but there's just a, a ton of biology going on. Then people come to me and they um, essentially have me um, work with them a bit on the kind of back end of understanding how these companies work, in some case mentoring these companies and coming up with reasonable milestones um, for investors to support these companies appropriately. That's one context. Um, Sometimes people come to me with their big, um, very exciting biological dreams. So they, they want to do something cool and new. It hasn't been done before. Um, they want to make a new kind of product line or a new facility or just something crazy and fun and exciting. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of fortunate enough to be in this position where people come to me with their wild biotech dreams. So, and then we go from there. Um, that's, that's one of the things I really love is helping people break these things down. And um, there are a lot of really talented people out there. And, you know, if you kind of have a sense for what people can do and where things can fit, that's, that's a large role I can play is helping people uh, figure mm -hmm. out what technical execution around some of these um, larger, more frontier tech projects could look like. So, so listeners, if you have a wild project <laughs> dream, yes. contact Kate. I will she'll chat help you make you. it happen. <laughs> yes. I, have a, I have a question, I guess. Like, you know, you, you talked about like all of the potential of this technology. Uh, you could almost, you know, do anything with it. Is there, is there anything that kind of scares you about, you know, Frankenfood or, you know, these, these other things people have called these genetically modified foods. Like, is, is there some potential to, to do damage or harm with this technology? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's always potential to do things that we don't expect to do. I mean, I don't know that people really thought too hard about health consequences around Twinkies. Um, but, you know, I really trust the FDA and USDA a whole lot. Um, they're really good at regulation. So they're currently working on a regulatory framework around some of this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, I really don't worry too much. I uh, trust, trust our, uh, our government to do a good job. Okay, so, the, so like the <laughs> FDA will do, like, human trials or... Um, on it before these new products are, are released. So I'm not sure about human trials, but um, what they'll do is they'll regulate the process, what's called pre-harvest. So whatever is in tanks growing will be FDA, and then post-harvest it's USDA. Um, the closest kind of regulatory framework to all this that's used for the protein production I talked about earlier is um, this process called GRASS, which is generally respected as safe. And grass is a process that's been around since the 90s. It was used for industrial enzymes we use in detergents. And um, in many cases, it does involve some animal testing. So the Impossible Burger has a grass filing people can look at if they're interested. Um, but because that process is so well known, that's kind of something we think of as possibly on the template spectrum for these meat products. It's as close as we know, because this is going to be kind of a new whole cloth sort of um, pursuit. But um, yeah, people are working really hard on the safety around this, this tech. So um, it's definitely, definitely a challenge. I think people are gonna, gonna have to make sure things are potentially cooked really well or labeled really well or, but I mean, meat's not exactly the most, I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to eat a lot of raw meat or um, stick raw meat on a wound, for instance. Or I mean, it's kind of dangerous stuff if you think about it. So um, within certain parameters, but so so, so it, we'll still have to cook our 
cook our uh, synthetic burgers. I suspect, but I mean, sashimi someday, right? I mean, it's got to happen. And is there a, on the like micro, uh, microbiome side of things where, um, and so this would be sort of the non, non-cooked foods uh, where if I'm, if I'm plucking, uh, I don't know, like a I don't know, sugar snap pea, like right off, right off from where it's growing, um, it's going to have this kind of, uh, a different kind of biology going on in it, not just the pea itself. That's a living thing. It's a plant, but also all the, the kind of the bugs, et cetera, that are within there, or the, you know, the micro, but that the micrologic, um, at the, the micro level. And so is this something that we would be unfortunately missing out on, um, with the, the, the more of these sort of lab grown foods, that we, as a, as the, the the folks eating it, we wouldn't we'd be missing out on on the richness, that biodiversity that occurs when we eat something, you know, right off the vine, versus a, a very curated, almost like literally like sterile kind of environment. And that could that be doing a uh, maybe could go so far as saying a disservice to the longer term parts of humanity and the way our microbiomes work, where we thrive off having that kind of stimulating variety of different kinds of of uh, flora and fauna kind of going into us. Yeah, I love that question, actually, because it kind of starts from a place that I think is easy to forget, which is cell culture is really sterile. It has to be. So these products, by nature, have to be so, so, so much cleaner than I think a lot of us might initially think, because that's how you have to make something in a lab setting. Otherwise, um, you can't get growth at the scale that you need. But to your point, yeah, it would be different. <laughs> it definitely wouldn't have the same microbes around it or anything like that. Um, but, you know, kind of goes on the list of the many um, border synth foods we eat, like um, ethylene-gassed um, tomatoes, for instance. You know, that's how we get tomatoes to be red on our plates, right, is they're picked green so they don't bruise. And then in in the either grocers or in the truck leading to the grocers, they're treated with this gas called ethylene that makes them ripen really nicely, turn red. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> pretty cool. I actually, yeah, it sounds kind of scary. Cool. <laughs> yeah, so actually, I heard this from folks at NASA. They were talking about doing all these like experiments with seedlings, you know, in space, trying to get these seedlings to sprout, but um, the seedlings weren't sprouting that well. Uh, and they realized it was because there was excess ethylene floating around um, the space station. And once they scrubbed the ethylene out of there, the, the little seedlings could grow no trouble. So, hmm. um, yeah, because ethylene um, impairs plant growth. It's like a, a death kind of signal. So. Wow. So now I'm kind of feeling like instead of uh, going from being an omnivore to a vegetarian, I might as well just go being full on fast, like all the time. <laughs> just, I'll just skip food or maybe eat Oreos. <laughs> I, I sometimes go on an Oreo binge. But <laughs> uh, no, definitely. Now, food is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, take, take us back. Um, take us back a little bit of time to, to kid Kate. What was she's seeing and experiencing that, you know, eventually led to where you are today as being an expert on, on high tech food. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I'm in one of the fortunate positions where, um, I couldn't have dreamed about being where I am today earlier in my life. And that's an extremely fortunate thing because it's a really exciting place to be. What, um, what were you dreaming about as a kid? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's see. I kind of wanted to be everything. I really got into paleontology. I like the idea of digging up bones. Um, I really liked the idea of being a cement truck driver. I really liked cement trucks. <laughs> it's pretty small back then, but you know they, they're just really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of wanted to do a little bit of everything. Eventually, I kind of thought, well, you know, I fell in love with um, actually Latin and Greek in high school. And I was like, oh, man, I want to go do, do classics. But I was just, you know, on a kind of a whim. I thought, well, you know, I'll cover my bases and um, make sure I take pre-med requirements just because, you know, um, it's always good to, you know, have, have job plans. And uh, lo and behold, I really, really liked biology and chemistry. 
uh, way more than I expected. So I ended up being a biochem major, working in a lab a whole lot. Um, science is just such a beautiful and fascinating thing. So um, it's kind of all gone from there. Wow. wow. So just you just kind of discovered it along your way. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, give a lot of credit to my undergrad. It really kind of pushed me that way. So. Um, and, and how did you get to the point of starting, you know, a consulting company in, in this space? Like, what, you know, how did you get into that business? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I was finishing up my PhD, um, and I essentially went down the world's deepest internet rabbit hole, came up with CellAg, um, started out this whole process of getting into a brand new field, and it's really just grown. I mean, the needs for technical consulting, I'd say, really just showed up pretty recently uh, as more and more mainstream investors, mainstream corporations, companies got involved in this space. It's gone from being this super niche kind of thing that very few people knew about. It was kind of like impossible. Um, and that was about it. You know, a handful of companies, uh, very little funding to just being this huge huge kind of force that's happening today. So yeah, there was a need for it. And uh, I kind of jumped, jumped off on it and started doing it. So it's been an exciting ride. And I think that's something that for um, a variety of our, our audience members, some of whom come from some sort of, you know, high academic pedigree, PhDs from from schools like Yale, et cetera, and love the the STEM components and, and the research. And they but there's always that that presentation of academia versus uh, like industry. And sometimes and, and maybe it's for lack of maybe exposure. Um, depends on maybe depends on your program or school or environment in terms of like if in the academic bubble it can look really scary out in in industry maybe it actually is kind of scary um, in some ways uh, but but nevertheless um there there can be sometimes a, a perception of maybe a, a push or a, a, a you know resistance um it's, it's one or the other and it now in a, to me in a sense you you have definitely sort of in in industry in terms of the the kind of consulting that you're doing the kind of these implications but there's a strong academic component to this Right. I mean, from from your background, but also to the kinds of folks that you're you're working with. So could you um, help us understand some of the, the experiences you've had in terms of working with these interdisciplinary kinds of teams, um, sometimes being the only Ph.D. Um, on a team or other times working with folks who are super good and and, you know, um, accredited on what they're doing, but may not have this broader perspective that someone like you can, can bring to the table of having worked in, in the industry and balancing um, those aspects? Yeah, I mean, I really like that question from a whole lot of angles, because I think this is something that a lot of us from kind of more traditional academic backgrounds do struggle with a lot, is I think a lot of us have gotten really good at doing certain things. Uh, we've spent a really, really long time gaining certain skill sets, uh, we're used in a certain sense, at least I was, to kind of, you know, you finish year four of grad school, you go on to year five, you have committee meetings on a schedule. Um, that doesn't make it easy, but it makes it known. And I think a lot of us, at least on some level, I appreciated that. On some level, I hated it. But on some level, you know, it, it does give you kind of a certainty in your mind. Um, but I think one thing that is important to remember is the price of freedom is uncertainty. And so... You kind of venture into that unknown and you're definitely taking more risks, but you also have more opportunity. So, um, which can be scary and can be great. Um, and I think one of the things I've realized that's really interesting is, oh, how do I say this? Yeah, it, there's definitely value in both sides of things. And I think one thing that I really noticed is Sometimes it's really hard for people who are extremely good at a certain skill set to be able to come into contact with people that could really benefit from that skill set. Um, and so that's, that's essentially where I see myself playing a whole lot is because, because of my deep technical background and ability to kind of understand these problems in such a way that I can 
work with people who are extremely adept at solving these problems on the one hand, and on the other, um, know enough about the macro sense, the landscape, um, and also kind of working in these startup environments that are a little bit quicker and dirtier. So I, I've learned how to break down problems in certain ways that I don't think is necessarily um, something that a person acquires in many contexts. So it's interesting. It's really cool to kind of see, now that I've worked with people from more backgrounds and kind of that come from more places, what what you kind of do in different environments to tune things. Um, one thing I have really enjoyed in my last kind of, um, now that I'm doing consulting again, is I just, I really like working with technical people and it's been so gratifying to work with more technical people. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting kind of cross-training exercise to work with people from just so, so many different backgrounds. It's, it's really fun and interesting and it's always something new. All right, so we'll, we'll do some rapid fire. Um, <laughs> Let's see, the first one. If, if you could have any flavor of synthetic meat, what flavor would that be? Banana. Banana. Ooh. <laughs> okay. All right, we'll do another one. Um, when, when do you think, what year do you think I'll be able to buy a synthetic steak from the grocery store? Oh, man, such a hard question. 2025? 2025. Uh, all right. Maybe more like 2035? That's 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 not too far. Um, you do you have a quick one, Jamil? <laughs> I'm still thinking about the banana flavored meat. That, that, that's a weird one to me. I mean, that would make I don't know if that, that would make King Kong proud, maybe. But um, <laughs> I, I mean, what can we and should we make foods that are that look like one thing and taste like something different? Is this something that would this be a fad, or is there are there like good psychological reasons for us to to do that? For example, kind of like how a uh, how <laughs> if you put food on a small plate, it sort of intentionally keeps our our portions a little bit smaller because we like to eat what's on our plate. Um, so make the plate small, you eat less. Is there a way to do that with with food by making it taste different or have different qualities, um, health qualities than what it looks sure. like? Sure. I mean, I think this is another interesting potential thing. One thing I think is cool is the idea of increasing the fiber content of meat products. Uh, so you get that juicy kind of meat situation, potentially on like what they talk about are these materials called scaffolds, which you grow cells on top of uh, so that the cells can get a nice perfusion of nutrients while they're growing. But if you think of a scaffold that's say made out of mushrooms or asparagus or celery or any sort of kind of vegetable, it's pretty exciting. Um, so we could hide my broccoli and my steak. So yeah, to totally. It could it. be a brocco steak. Mm. I mean, you don't <laughs> have to choose. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that stuff is really interesting. So we'll see what happens. Can I can I ask you guys some rapid fire? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ask us some rapid fire <laughs> yeah, questions. Go for it. Okay, what do you guys think is the hardest part of making lab grown meat? Like from your your background, where would you see the biggest challenges? I think probably getting all the cells to. St- I don't know, stick together, but in a nice Fair. texture. I mean, is, yeah, that, is I that? I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm an aerospace engineer. So. Yeah, no, that's actually what I'm curious about. It's like, what engineering challenges would you see? Or is that just like too far afield to be even interesting? Yeah. I mean, I imagine like scaling it would be, you know, the, the biggest challenge, right? Like, how do you create... A meat factory like I understand how you know you can make bioreactors but you know scaling something to the point where you're popping out realistic stakes I think would be a big challenge yeah that's the one I can't wrap my head around <laughs> for me it, it would seem like cell-based meat a challenge the big one is how to get it so it's a, a heterogeneous mix of stuff because to me at least for me like if I look at a piece of steak that's not a mono cellular construct so i don't have the foggiest idea how we'd effectively be able to blend in these kinds of of different cells and have them all like say for said like sort of have them stick together um but really have them be happy together and and taste great doing that because i think taste is a big por- a important part of this and i'd rather not be eating stuff that's 
um, as artificially flavored and covered with like red 40 and blue 20 <laughs> and stuff, you know, because <laughs> yeah, my, my perception of processed food, <laughs> yeah, to me, processed food before the coloring and flavoring is sort of those like, I don't know, like brownish off white <laughs> kind of, you know, puree or something. So maybe the cheese, maybe the cheese doodles are come out looking <laughs> a little more like they should until you sprinkle, you know, neon orange on them. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a question too, is what, what the appeal is like going to be like to different people. But yeah, actually there's some super interesting research around things like fat marbling and stuff going on at UCLA. So, um, yeah, it's, a uh, Dr. Amy Rowett's lab. Actually, she'd be really interesting too. If you're interested mm. in getting more into the meat, meat concept. And how, how do you keep, keep, uh, sort of smart on the space? Because this, this is the intersection of a couple different industries. Or is it a small group of people that, that are like lightning rods for the advancement? It used to be a small group of people. And I think there are still key players. I mean, there are a couple labs that are really um, at the top of the field, field I'd say. But, um, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely ballooning. It used to be that, you know, when a paper came out at New Harvest, almost certainly um, we'd know who the authors were just as a given. And nowadays new stuff comes out all the time and it's, uh, it's really exciting. So yeah, it's hard to keep up with these days. It's, it's kind of at the level now where you just kind of, uh, do what you can. And there's some really, there's new stuff all the time. Well, we'll have to get back together once we get that, um, you know, those lab grown steaks off the line from the supermarket (laughs) and have a podcast where we do a taste test together. Yes. Uh, it'd be a lot of fun. Like to really thank you for for being on the show today. Um, I appreciate it, and I guess we'd like to give our guests one last uh, moment to give any parting words of I don't know advice to to people watching the show that are maybe interested in getting involved in this um, new f- food tech industry. Yeah, I mean especially for people who are finishing up PhDs in any kind of bioscience or guess even in some senses engineering too there's just so many jobs in this space right now especially this last year um, the hiring has been pretty pretty intense so if you're interested a good slack channel to get on is gf ideas people post jobs there all the time um, take a look on linkedin see who's uh, raised another round it's a uh, yeah it's a great time to get into the space on the science side hi i'm kate krieger of helicon consulting stay tough Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Tough Tech Today. If you enjoyed the show, please like the video, subscribe, leave a comment. We'll answer all of your comments. And if you're listening on a podcast, leave us a five-star review. In two weeks, we will be talking with Matt Goldstein. He's the managing director of M12. That's a venture fund backed solely by Microsoft.